Welcome back to another episode of Unpack Everything, Science Education Reform in the Real World. I'm Sam Pinter. Dan and I are excited to continue our exploration of the framework for K-12 science education today. In previous episodes, we've spoken with Brian Reiser about the NGSS and framework and how they came to be. And we also spoke with Michael Novak and Michelle Zhang about the science and engineering practices, what they are, how we use them, and what it means for students to engage in science using these practices. If you missed any of these earlier episodes, you can find them in our back catalog to give them a listen. Today, we're continuing our journey through the framework with a focus on the cross-cutting concepts with Dr. Anne Rivett. Anne Rivett is an associate professor of science education at Teachers College, Columbia University, and associate director of the Center for Sustainable Futures. In her research, she uses learning sciences frameworks to explore the intersections of scientific reasoning, instructional design, and assessment, particularly with regards to students' sense-making around large-scale earth systems. She's a member of the Open Syed High School Developers Consortium and is also one of the editors of the NSTA Press book, Disciplinary Core Ideas, Reshaping Teaching and Learning, along with Rivet Duncan and Joe Krajic. Let's jump into our conversation with Anne. Anne, welcome to the show. Could you just say who you are and what it is you do? All right. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. My name is Anne Rivet. In my professional work, I wear a few different hats. I am first a professor of science education at Columbia University's Teachers College, where I work with our master's and doctoral programs in the science education program. I'm also the associate director for the Center for Sustainable Futures at Teachers College. This is a research and outreach center focused on sustainability and climate education efforts. And third, I'm part of the Open Syed High School Developers Consortium, where my role is to support the design and integration of earth science learning goals with biology, chemistry, and physics units. My research that I do is really has a dual focus. It's first focused on how students learn core science concepts, particularly those in earth and physical sciences, in deep and meaningful ways. And second, how do we effectively design and support curricula and learning environments and instructional strategies that support this deep and meaningful learning for all students? Uh, and that's the work that I've been doing over the course of my career. Thanks, Anne. And for, for all of you listening, I bet you can guess why we want Anne on, because she covers a lot of the territory that we love to talk about. I'm so happy to be here. So we're going to start out with kind of a big question. We hope that this episode covers a lot of ground across the cross-cutting concepts. So when you think of the cross-cutting concepts, like what are they? What are the cross-cutting concepts? So they're one of the three dimensions laid out by the framework for K-12 science education that are part of three-dimensional learning and understanding in science. The cross-cutting concepts are these big ideas or these frameworks that are common across or and or span disciplinary boundaries in science. So they're really these things that are, whether you're reasoning and sense-making in biology or chemistry or physics, there are these kind of big ideas or conceptual frameworks that scientists and also learners and students draw on and apply when they're trying to better understand the ways in which science ideas are related to explanations for phenomena. 
So can you say more about where these cross-cutting concepts came from and like how we landed on the group of seven that we have? Absolutely. So this is not a new idea. This, uh, this notion that there are these big ideas or big frameworks that are common across science and are part of the what distinguishes science reasoning and meaning making from other disciplines has been around for many, many years. So they were first sort of called out from the American Association for the Advancement of Science in their, their landmark publication, Science for All Americans, is what it was titled. When they released their benchmarks for scientific literacy in 1993, they identified these four common themes across science. And they were systems and models, consistency and change, and scale. In 1996, the National Research Council released the first set of national science education standards. And they had five unifying concepts and processes in science that stand across the different disciplines. And they included system order and organization, evidence, models, and explanation, change, consistency, and measurement, evolution, and equilibrium, and form and function. This theme that there are these big ideas that span across the disciplines have been around for a long time. And you can see echoes of them in the way in which the seven cross-cutting concepts are articulated in the framework. These seven are... Probably not the only seven. There have been arguments made that maybe some of these should be combined, or maybe there are some that are missed and things like that in, when you talk to different scholars and people who are thinking about this. But these are the ones that, given the, the scientists and the, the committees that were together to frame this, felt were the ones that really either had significant reasoning value within a particular discipline or were the ones most commonly drawn upon in scientific reasoning across different disciplines. So that's sort of how they landed on this list of seven. The list of seven cross-cutting concepts includes the following. There's patterns, which is observing patterns, uh, cause and effect mechanisms and explanation, which is really not so much about identifying the fact that there's a cause and effect, but understanding that cause and effect is related to how we explain why and how something causes a change. Scale, proportion, and quantity. The fourth one is systems and system models. And the fact that systems are defined by the models that are used to describe them. And the way that we describe the the different ways in which we model systems will show us different things about that system. Energy and matter flows, cycles, and conservation. This isn't about the concepts of energy and matter per se that are more disciplinary concepts, but the fact that matter and energy flows and cycles and is conserved. And so paying attention to the ways in which energy and matter are interchangeable, but are conserved within a system, the relationship between structure and function and the conditions that lead to stability or change of a system. And those are the seven cross-cutting concepts. Thanks. So these different like lenses we put on when we're trying to make sense of something, do they tend to be mutually exclusive when students are engaging with them? Or if I'm trying to have my students think about patterns, will they only be thinking about patterns? Or are some of these other ones coming in uh, as they work? They're not mutually exclusive. They actually, when we are 
trying to make sense or trying to explain or trying to figure out something in the real world. There are, I often think of these as cognitive tools. There are things that you can draw on in order to frame how you ask a question or how you're thinking about the relationship between evidence. So they play a lot into the ways in which we use the practices as well around figuring out and sense-making around phenomena. So you you tend to use multiple of these at the same time because they are all interrelated. Like you can see a pattern and you use the pattern to begin to ask questions about a cause and effect relationship that might get at the mechanism. Or you can think about the ways in which different things are happening at different scales, whether they're spatial scales or how or change over time or rates of change that are happening differentially and how that's related to cause and effect or how that's related to how the system works and your emergent properties of a system. So there's the, these often do fit together. There have been proposals that um, some of these are more general, sort of like nth order, higher order cross-cutting concepts, and some of them are, are more specific instances of these bigger concepts. So patterns, systems, scale proportion, and reasoning have been called out as these big ideas with cause and effect sort of sitting under systems and energy conservation sitting under systems and things like that. But in practice, they all serve different roles to help us make sense of the ways in which science concepts are help us explain and understand the world around us. And they do sort of work in tandem with each other to do that. Thanks, Anne. So this is something that came to me kind of while you were talking You said that the kind of the idea that there are concepts or themes that cross different sciences has been brewing for a while now. You you mentioned dates going back basically two decades, actually three, geez, three decades now. And as I hear that, it's striking me that when, you know, I, I was trained as an engineer and there's like in a chemistry class, you get lots of very content specific ideas and there's never these connections made to other areas of science in that same way. So I guess my question is, if it's so important that we have these themes across science and that students understand them, why are we just hearing about that idea now? Why is this something that we haven't necessarily experienced ourselves in our own science education? Oh, that's a good question. I can make some sort of experience-based guesses, stabs at that, at answering that question. Yeah, please, if you're comfortable doing so. So what I end up thinking back to is is sort of the the disconnect that has existed for a long time between how science is practiced in the scientific community and what our goals and approaches have been for science education. And a lot of this dates back to very early stages of science education where, for example, in the late 1950s and 1960s when Sputnik happened and there was a big rush to our space race and trying to improve the teaching of science to improve, to expand our capacity to compete with the Russians, basically, the scientists were driving the curriculum and they really approached it in terms of, well, what we do is we use the ideas of science to help us innovate and and explore and develop new ideas. So we need to teach kids the ideas in science. 
without paying attention to like what they mean and how they work and how they're actually used in community. What has happened over the last 15 years with the move towards project-based learning and contextualized learning and, and learning through practice is this shift in the field of science ed towards more of the ways of thinking about science ideas that more closely aligns with and is similar to how scientists think about these science ideas. If the scientists approach their, their work, uh, their task, as trying to explain something that's happening out in the natural world and making some sort of being able to predict something about it, being able to see relationships among it, being able to, to explain it, explain things that we can't readily see. They're using these concepts all the time to connect the data that they have with the claims and ideas that they have in science. This is sort of the glue that holds them together. And it's in that exploration that things like asking questions about cause and effect relationships or being able to analyze or, or model phenomena using systems is so critically important. So in the same way that when we were in school, we didn't have project-based learning where we were exploring phenomena and answering questions that were meaningful to us, we also weren't in a place where we were expected to reason in this way. We did... we. We played the school science game, not the actual science science game. And now the framework in particular has really put out a call to move us in more of this sort of sense-making epistemological direction that science has. And these cross-cutting concepts are a key and central piece to that. And by epistemological, you mean just like how we know what we know, right? How we know what we know, why we, why we believe what we know. And so the reason why these ideas make sense is because I can reason using these tools, these sort of cognitive tools of these cross-cutting concepts to understand why that idea is so powerful, in particular around any particular phenomenon. And I hear you saying that when we think about the cross-cutting concepts, there's something that's really always been present in actual science work. And the reason why we weren't doing them more in classrooms is because what we were doing in classrooms was more learning about science and not as much doing science as we really want students to be engaging in. Exactly. Awesome. Kind of running with this idea of sense-making, what are some different ways that we can actually use cross-cutting concepts to support that sense-making? And I, I know you've, if you want to draw on this language, I know you've talked about different metaphors for this. So oftentimes when people talk about the cross-cutting concepts, they talk about them as like first and foremost as lenses or ways of looking at a phenomena and so when you're looking at, so I work in our science, when you're looking at a, a map of plate boundaries, or you're looking at the Grand Canyon, um, you're, you're, you want to look for like, and trying to figure out, okay, why is that there? And why, like, how do, like, how do we understand this? You start asking questions, well, what, what caused it? Or how like how long has it been there? Has it always been that way? That gets into your stability and change. Like and and so you're using these ideas in order to ask questions and sort of, and I I've talked a lot about how when you're when you change the frame, the lens that you're using to look at at a phenomena from one cross-cutting concept to another, you're sort of like spinning around it. So like like you can see one side of the 
the cube and then you use a different cross-cutting concept and you're on the other side of the cube. And so the thing is spinning. You get these sort of multiple perspectives on things and it allows you to ask different questions that fundamentally draw on either different disciplinary ideas or different ways in which those disciplinary ideas come to bear in explaining that phenomena. So you get more of a robust interdisciplinary, interconnected explanation of the phenomena when you're able to ask multiple different kinds of questions framed by these cross-cutting concepts or driven by these cross-cutting concepts around a particular phenomenon. So that's a key way in which they which they're used. And so it that's a that's a it's taking the approach that students have them and they're using them and applying them to explain. There's a couple of other ways in which you can they can be used in sense making as well though that are really really important and can't be forgotten. The first is around bridges. So oftentimes when you're learning ideas in biology and then you the next year you're learning ideas in chemistry, you tend not to connect them. These are biology ideas, these are chemistry ideas, even though they actually are the same idea, but they they become so contextualized in these different disciplines that they lose their their power to move across that. And so cross-cutting concepts are one way to bridge that and sort of see the way in which an idea operates across multiple different phenomena and multiple different settings. So it sort of pushes on that disciplinarity and helps to see why biology and chemistry aren't separate, but they're actually all part of science and can be used in sense-making in that way. The third I've made reference to, which is that cross-cutting concepts are the set of conceptual tools. So when faced with a new situation or something new you have to explain or investigate, you have like a toolkit in your head to sort of say, okay, like, how do I approach understanding this? Well, I can approach it thinking about sort of what are the relationships between the parts and what might be causing what, or what are the patterns that I see here and what might those patterns indicate about the relationships or change or categories, or, I mean, one of my favorite ones, actually, this, this using the conservation of matter and energy to understand a system is one of my favorite ones. Okay. Like, so something happened here and where, where is the energy moving and how, like, or where's the energy before and after what happened to the matter? Like all, all of that, that's how I understand not only chemical reactions, but all of your laws of thermodynamics and things like that, that actually are not only driving physical systems, but earth systems as well. And so thinking about those as tools to help you make sense of all of these different phenomena on different scale. And the fourth one is sort of more of a a way of thinking about cross-cutting concepts that I refer to as rules of the game. And this gets back into actually understanding science as a science thing rather than a school thing. That Scientists approach trying to make sense of new phenomena through these different perspectives. That is what a scientist's approach to these things are. And so they become kind of these, these rules. So when we're in a, not necessarily in science class, but we're in, when we're taking a scientific approach, these are the ways in which we're thinking about making sense of things. There's lots of other ways to do it that are not the science way to do it. But this is one way to encapsulate what the science way of doing it is. So in that sense, they're super powerful in all of these different ways in which students can use them as part of their three-dimensional science understanding. And they develop over time and develop in fluency and sophistication with these ideas as they keep using them throughout their science education. Cool. Thank you for that. It's interesting to hear how there's 
like we we see the list, but they actually have some specific ways they can support students. Mm -hmm. Another part of the framework was all standards for all students. So I'm wondering how supporting students in engaging with and using these cross-cutting concepts in all these different ways that you've laid out helps to support our goal of equity in a science classroom? So I, I approach this idea of all standards for all students as taking very seriously the fact that students come to the class with lots of different ideas, lots of different things that they know, lots of different ways of knowing, and lots of different ways in which they want to know or don't know, don't want to know. And what I appreciate about the three-dimensional perspective on understanding for all students is that it's, I really feel strongly that when we start focusing on phenomena-based education and, and explaining what's happening out in the real world, it provides the space for students to make their own sense of things and bring to bear the ways that they understand with the ways that other people understand so that those can then sort of marry together into a shared understanding that develops more and more in sophistication as they use those ideas. And in the, the cross-cutting concepts themselves provide those entry points for students to bring their perspectives and their ways of knowing and their ideas and to sense make sort of on their own path in, in, in certain ways. So one of the things that project-based curriculum, so as I mentioned before, I'm working with Open Syed, they start every unit with a anchoring phenomenon that students generate questions around. And those questions are all over the map, but that's the beauty of it. And that's the space where their way of understanding and their, their questioning, their curiosity, their prior knowledge all comes into play in the way that they start to frame what are the questions that we could ask and, and what, how and why can we understand this phenomenon. Looking very carefully at those questions, you can see a whole smattering of different cross-cutting concepts that they are implicitly part of those questions. And it's not just one, it's all combinations of them in really interesting and powerful ways. So rather than there being one right answer or one right way of looking at it or one explanation that we're aiming for, the cross-cutting concepts are really pushing the instruction in science education towards allowing multiple different ways of sense-making around any one particular phenomenon. And it still is tied to the disciplinary core ideas because you can sense-make around phenomena with the ideas in lots of different ways. That's the power of the cross-cutting concepts. And it allows students to really use how they sense-make in the world as a rightful and appropriate way to understand what's going on with the science and with the phenomena that without it just becomes basically trying to work towards the science answer. That's my take on it. That's why they're, for me, they're so important in supporting equity. It also is, it, it provides a structure and a responsibility for students to articulate very clearly and think, think hard and articulate clearly what and how they understand things. So it moves instruction from, I have the answer as a teacher, give me the answer as a student to tell me what you're, how you understand this 
And which, which gets into the bigger question around assessment. Like, how, like when we're talking about assessing these ideas, it's not one more thing for students to know. It's the way in which they use them to articulate their understanding and their sense-making through the process of explaining a phenomenon. And you can see how they've connected the phenomena and the ideas through those cross-cutting concepts, which tells you more about how they understand the disciplinary core ideas and their flexibility and their transferability, but also the ways in which they've interconnected the other things and other ways of understanding the phenomena to those ideas. Thanks. As you were talking, I was thinking about all of those different ways that we use the cross-cutting concepts, like spinning the phenomenon around to different ways and, and bridging back to our other science classes that we've had before. And I think the way that you explained how the students' questions are driving that learning really like clicked in my head of how it's allowing them to all look at different sides of the phenomenon from the beginning and to bridge back to what they've already learned and, and all their other experiences too. So that's really cool. One of the central points that I've always found to be a real sticking point when we talk about sort of pipeline in science and the lack of it, lack of representation and diversity in science is the fact that there, in traditionally in science education, there are so few opportunities to really fully express how you understand, how you, the learner, understand the ideas and why we're doing what we're doing and why it matters to you why we're doing what we're doing. And I feel like the, the fact that there's such a central role of the cross-cutting concepts and understanding with the framework if we take the opportunity as educators to really embrace that, we can create spaces where that becomes a not only a accepted, but a central way in which a classroom together makes sense of things by recognizing and hearing and validating all the different ways that students are sense-making because they're all scientific, even though they're not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. I'm also wondering how or maybe why it's so important for us as educators to be explicit about these cross-cutting concepts when we're working with students and maybe like make it visible to them what what they're doing rather than just assuming that they're going to look through all of these lenses or come at it from all these other angles. So it, it's really important to be explicit. And by explicit, I don't mean direct instruction. So one of the key things is that these are not seven things that are put up on definitions on the board and kids are actually asked to memorize what they are and then recite them on a test. These are tools that they use. In the same way that one of my favorite metaphors is sort of ideas as a tool, like a hammer. The more you use the tool, the more you use a hammer, the more you understand what a, ha what a hammer is and what it can do, but also you understand, the more you understand all the different contexts in which a hammer is useful to use it in. Like you can hang pictures, you can do things in a wood shop, you can pull things out of stuff, like you, you can do all sorts of different things. And it's, so you understand the context as well as understanding the idea. And in the same way, these cross-cutting concepts are sort of that kind of tool. So it's important that students have opportunities to reason with them over and over again in lots of different concepts, and it's important that they have the, a way to become aware and, and metacognitive so they're able to think and reflect on how they did that. And part of the point about being explicit, whether it is a teacher noticing that kind of reasoning and 
just sort of saying, I saw you do that kind of reasoning, or it's a an opportunity, okay, now that we asked your questions, like, could you think about it in a different way? And so here are some other tools that are cognitive tools. Here's some other cross-cutting concepts you could use. Could you think about asking a different question, making them aware of how they started and where they could go? I mean, there's there's different ways to be more explicit. But the other thing that being explicit does is that it allows other kids to see, okay, that's what it means to reason that way. So if I'm the kind of kid that only sees a pattern, like I I, I know, like I get the pattern thing. If I see another kid reasoning about systems, I could model that and I could use that idea and I could then see why patterns are so important to thinking about systems. And it also begins to build a more robust shared understanding of all the different ways we can understand an idea, understand a phenomenon, and allow for the real power in being able to express and share how things make sense to you and why they why it's important to you. So those kinds of experiences build identity, build agency, build confidence in being scientific and and being a, being someone who you can see yourself as being able to do science. So as a student goes through school, hopefully they're recognizing much like as you spend more time working with hammers, you recognize, oh, these are the types of things that a hammer can help me do. These are the types of things it cannot help with or is unlikely to help as much with. And here's how you do it. Let's think about a student's path through different disciplines across school. Well, we'll just do high school. And I want us to do this just in part because I think it's important to see how the same tool can be used in multiple contexts, but also, you know, one one could be skeptical still after all that you said that do these cross-cutting concepts really appear in different disciplines? And I picked stability and change because I was trained as an engineer. I taught physics and chemistry and stability and change is not something we spent a lot of time thinking about through a lot of that, at least not explicitly. So let, let's start pretty easy. Biology, high school biology, where might stability and change be a useful lens or tool for us? And we can keep each one of these fairly brief because we got to get through all four. All right, I'll keep them pretty brief. So one of the things to, to keep in mind is that the cross-cutting concept of stability and change. So the the text around it is can is really about it's about connecting systems, the idea of stability and change, rates of change, and scale. So those all kind of sort of go together when you're thinking about this. So you don't want to lose that. So like the framework says for natural and built systems alike, conditions of stability and determinants of rates of change or evolution of a system are critical elements of study. So that is, it's not just whether or not something's stable or, or changing, it is about determinants and conditions and determinants that matter. So in biology, there's stability and change is a, one of those really central ideas. I mean, you're looking at evolution, you're looking at evolution of individual organisms, of ecosystems, ideas about like succession in ecosystems, you're looking at extinction, like there's all sorts of different phenomena that are happening out there. So if you are looking at as a personal example, so I grew up in pretty rural New Hampshire, and you'd walk through the woods and you see all these old stone walls. The reason stone walls are there at some point, that was a field and the farmer had put the walls there. It's full of trees now. So how did it get there? 
And so you sort of look at the stability and change of that ecosystem over time. So how it's evolved and you have new growth forests and old growth forests and things like that. And that in, a, in any one particular period of time, it can seem really, really stable, but over time it has changed and it's evolved. So that's your biology one. In earth science, you bump that up to talk about global systems and everything from plate tectonics to, so one of the key ideas in earth science is that some change happens really slowly and some change happens very rapidly. So weathering erosion deposition is a slow process that happens, that shapes the, the landscape over long periods of time. Earthquakes can cause big change in a very rapid period of time. Volcanoes cause a very fast change within a local space. And so you're looking at rates of change there. And when is it stable? When is it changing? Is it changing consistently? Is it changing rapidly? One of the key ideas in climate change is, yes, the climate has been different. It does change, but the rate of change is unprecedented. And so that really brings in that notion of, the system's no longer stable because the rate of change is ridiculous. In chemistry, you're looking at chemical reactions. What, what is the, the threshold at which you're going to get different atoms and chemicals to interact with each other and create new chemicals and release things? In physics, it's all over the place in terms of whether you're talking about the stability of motion systems and sort of your acceleration, your your free fall potential energy converting to kinetic energy, that kind of thing. Or you're talking about thermodynamics and the ways in which things like a steam engine happens. I mean, there it's, you, you have sort of a steady state system until you don't. And sort of what is happening there? Where's the matter and energy moving in those systems? And like, and how you define the system matters a lot. So those are all places and phenomena where stability and change is a way of thinking about what happens. But as you can see, it also is tied in with how you define a system and how you're looking at scale and how you're paying attention to change and rate of change and things like that. They're all part of that. Mm -hmm. And you got me thinking a little bit that it feels like sometimes in the physical sciences, we do have a tendency to just because they can get so complex and we're talking about all these little particles or something, or we're talking about real objects that have non-ideal properties, we, we tend to idealize and simplify systems in ways that might sometimes obscure some of that stability and change. Absolutely. I'm thinking about, I mean, there's the book called The Three-Body Problem. We never do those in physics in the K-12 level because it's hard, but it might be worthwhile for us to spend some time exploring like, okay, why, why are we simplifying this here? Because if we don't simplify it, then it becomes much harder for us to make predictions. Yes. And so, and one of the things is to really sort of talk through and take seriously students' ideas about those complications and explain why we're not thinking about them now. So for example, one of the curriculum units I worked on, the, the driving question is, why do I need to wear a helmet when I ride my bike? And there was a whole class discussion in one of the classrooms I was working with around why the law says like things keep going until they're acted on by an outside force. But when you're pedaling your bike down the street, you have to keep pedaling or it's going to stop. So why are we not paying attention to friction? Where is, what is friction doing? Why, like, where is it acting? And why, when we're talking about other kinds of motion, we don't pay attention to that in our explanation. And so it's all about sort of like how, how we 
isolate in some ways the this is what scientists do they use the cross-cutting concepts to isolate the phenomena that they're actually trying to understand and hold constant those other things that are also really interesting but they require other kinds of explanations and other kinds of investigations that we when we understand this idea we can think about more later you had mentioned assessment before i want to come back to that just briefly i'm wondering what kind of role cross-cutting concepts play in an assessment when we're assessing students knowledge of science ideas or like how they're making sense of a phenomenon and also how we can measure students growth in using these tools so i worked on a project where we actually were trying to better understand this question particularly in assessments and one of the things that we worked with was asking high school students to explain a phenomenon explicitly using three different, so write three different explanations using three different cross-cutting concepts. So explain this phenomena using the idea of systems, explain this phenomena using the idea of patterns, explain this phenomena using cause and effect. We found two really interesting patterns in the data. One is that there was a group of students who knew the right answer and would write the same explanation three times. And so they knew what, what the science was, but they weren't really reasoning with the cross-cutting concepts. The second one is that we found kids who actually were able to give answers. The science explanation wasn't fully there. Either they hadn't taught. So we asked we ask kids questions across biology, chemistry, and physics, and they were also across the ranges. So they might not have learned it yet, or they weren't fully grasping the ideas. But they, you could see in the answers where they were trying to reason with the with these cross-cutting concepts. So they, they were reasoning about patterns. The disciplinary idea wasn't necessarily there, but the reasoning was there. And it was different from what reasoning looked like with cause and effect and different with systems. And then there were the kids whose answers actually, when they wrote full explanations using these three lenses, were three different fully articulated scientific explanations of the phenomena from these three different frames. And so in that work, you, you actually, if you ask students in the ways that you prompt the question to use a particular cross-cutting concept, you can get some information about what they understand about the idea and what they understand about the cross-cutting concept. Doing it together actually provided a way to, to see the interrelationship between the two and what students were doing with them. In the ideal world, if we're going to set learning goals, we want students to be able to explain phenomena using lots of these different frameworks and using the disciplinary ideas in flexible ways through these different lenses in order to explain phenomena coherently. And in the same way that the development of the disciplinary understanding, it grows in complexity and sophistication over time, so does the their ability to reason with and use and apply these cross-cutting concepts. But they're very situated, and in a lot of ways, they're implicit because they're part of reasoning and sense-making. And so it's not the kind of thing where you can say, tell me what you understand about a cause and effect relationship, <laughs> like cause and effect reasoning, or tell me what you can understand about energy and matter. So in terms of assessment, I think there's two important points. One is to be aware of how you're asking students to reason about the science and the phenomena when you're asking the question and provide space for them to, to reason about it through lots of different lenses. 
and see what they're able to do. It'll tell you something about how they understand the idea that you're aiming for to assess as well as these cross-cutting concepts. And there's more than just sort of written explanations that you can look at. You can look at the way that they share their findings and presentations, the way that they frame an, ex- an investigation, the way that they explain their model. I mean, there, there's lots of different spaces where you can do this. Transfer tasks are interesting ways to look at how they're able to not only transfer an idea from one context to another, but transfer their reasoning around it. And in the sense that they've had the ability to see lots of different cross-cutting concepts in use around phenomena with different ideas, then that you can assess the ways that they've picked that up and been able to apply it themselves, which is the part about being explicit in instruction and tying that back to opportunities for assessment. I've seen teachers use exit tickets and journaling to do this. A lot of it has to do with when you give students an opportunity for them to express their understanding, you can ask them to explicitly reason with particular ideas, but also just give them the space to express their own ideas without any prompting and look for development and sophistication over time is how I would frame the goals for assessment around these ideas. Because they really aren't things that kids need to know. They are tools for them to use that really help with meaning making. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just to wrap up, I'm wondering if there's anything that you wish we would have asked that you want to talk about that we didn't we didn't get to. I loved your questions. I thought that they were great. I know that, well, this might be actually a question that I can turn on, on to you. I know that teachers, when they're first introduced to this idea of cross-cutting concepts, find it to be very amorphous and find it, I mean, there's even some states that when they've adapted their version of the next generation science standards have dropped this dimension entirely. So I feel like there's something missing in the way in which the framework and the standards and the all the support work that we've done has sort of missed the boat in helping people understand where this plays a role. Mm-hmm. Because when you read a list of seven, it becomes a, oh my God, I also have to teach those seven. So I hope that being able to better explain and give examples of how it's part of reasoning will help with this, but it's very hard to communicate. It's hard to communicate to policy leaders and curriculum leaders. It's hard to communicate to teachers. It's hard to communicate to developers. I have seen examples of curriculum materials and lessons that are like, if you just once mention the word system, we're doing the the cross-cutting concept of systems. It's like, you're not really asking kids to reason and think about like using system thinking or like, we have a phenomena that was like this and then it was like something else. And so therefore we're doing stability and change. Well, you're not asking them to really understand that. So I hope, (laughs) I I feel that there's been a gap. And so I really, A, appreciate having this conversation with you as part of this work that you're doing. And B, I'm very open and curious about other ideas that the field has and that you guys coming from the perspective of teachers who are trying to do this, have about how to better communicate this. I know for me, the the STEM teaching tools, it, it's 41. Number 41 is the cross concepts was very helpful 
early on to just have a list of different prompts that, okay, if I want students to be thinking about cause and effect, here's some different language that could get that going. I can't say when I started using that tool, I entirely understood what they were, but it, it was at least a starting point to start getting some of that language going more in my classroom, even if it wasn't always the most strategic thing built over time. You know, it would be helpful too to have curricula that do that more intentionally, but that wasn't really a thing at the time. Yeah, I think for me, there wasn't a lot of support within my own school or district in thinking about these cross-cutting concepts. There was much more focus on the disciplinary core ideas and the science and engineering practices because these are like the things we're more used to. It wasn't really until I started working on the Open Syed and iHub writing teams to think through like, if these are the goals of our lesson, like what's gonna be the performance expectation for students? And then how would I ask students to actually do this thing through the lens of whatever cross-cutting concept was the goal or whatever practice we were attempting to use, like really sitting down and thinking for every single lesson that I was working on writing, like how are students gonna engage with these? What prompts do teachers need? What supports will students need within the lesson to look at or to visualize? And doing that for every single lesson is a lot for the teacher on their own. But when there's materials available that have done some of that thinking for you, I think it's much more, much less cumbersome and much more doable. Absolutely. Just one more thing I'll say is, so all of the NGSS performance expectations have a cross-cutting concept in them. And I view that articulation as one, it, as sort of doing two things. One is to provide an, a way of expressing how the cross-cutting concept relates to the practice and to the disciplinary core idea. They use all the different cross-cutting concepts across all the different, like the, there's a, a matrix where everything is mapped to everything. So you can see the ways in which these cross-cutting concepts actually do apply or are connected to ideas in the different disciplines through the way that they've articulated it. And I think that that's powerful and helpful to pay attention to. It's not just one kind of reasoning in a particular discipline that they, they do go across. The other piece is that the cross-cutting concept in a PE begins to help frame how you're supposed to understand that disciplinary idea. As I was saying before, these ideas, like you get a disciplinary core idea, like they're, they're quite robust. And they're also in a lot of ways quite abstract. And the way in which in the performance expectation, they frame the cross-cutting concept with that idea, where they've paired those together, sort of begin to help better shape the kinds of understanding about that idea that they're expected to have at that gray band. And it develops over time. The same disciplinary idea goes from K2, 3, 5, 6, 8, 9, 12, but it's shaped differently. And one of the ways that you see how it's shaped, how it's framed, how it how it grows is through the way it's paired with those cross-cutting concepts. So it's it doesn't mean that that's the only cross-cutting concept you use to address that PE or to address that idea, but it it helps when you're thinking about learning targets, which goes back to the assessment question, that 
there's particular, the, the NGSS has paired them intentionally as a way to shape how you're thinking about it. So that's another sort of piece around helping teachers and curriculum coordinators and district coordinators and, and developers better understand the ways in which that pairing was intentional and what it can do for student understanding and assessment developers too, is, is one way maybe to communicate the role that these are supposed to play and that they actually do belong rather than sort of being left. It's, it's not like that thinking was never there. It's just without having it, without naming it and calling it out and asking for it to be an explicit part of learning, it tends to get dropped. And it you're more likely to move towards the one right answer school science version of what's expected. Thank you so much, Anne. This is a great conversation. I am so happy about this. So it was a real pleasure to join you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SciEdPod. Our music is Rainbows by Scott Buckley. Oh.